Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being comforted, conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Will you pray with me? Father God, we can repeat these words of Paul, claiming all things to be less glamorous, less worthy, and even dung to, compared to knowing you. Yet without your draw and the Spirit's persistent in our lives, we won't believe it. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Reveal your glory to us. Fix our hearts on your forgiveness and humble us through the preaching of your word. Comfort our anxieties this morning, for our goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Well, pretty exciting morning, huh? Can you think of a... Yes, let's all just congratulate our baptizees here. Uh, can you think of a better way to spend a Sunday morning? Wow, wow, than extending the right hand of fellowship to folks who are being baptized in the Lord. Uh, we're going to continue this morning in Acts chapter 9, talking about the story of Saul of Tarsus. And today we're looking at the adversary who becomes the advocate. The adversary who becomes the advocate. Before I tell the rest of his story, I want to tell you a little bit of mine. Uh, when I first turned my life over to Jesus, I came to the Lord turning about 15-ish, uh, and I had done a lot of damage uh, in my short uh, life, and I looked like a pretty rough street kid. I was the kid that you looked at and thought, he's surely not a Christian. And I was a Christian. I was a believer in Jesus. I love the Lord. I repented of my sin. I had come into the church. I confessed Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so I was attending a really great church at the time. But a friend of mine named Welford invited me to a little church, a little storefront church that he was attending. Now, this little church in Richmond, Virginia, I think it used to be a 7-Eleven. How does a 7-Eleven go out of business, for heaven's sake? But uh, I think it was a 7-Eleven, and I think that's what it was. And then they had converted it into just a little storefront church building. And uh, it was very lively, to say the least. And uh, so I went in with my friend, and I noticed several things when I first got into this church. The first thing I noticed is that everyone was staring at me. The second thing I noticed is that no one was talking to me. And then I went and sat down on the front row with my homie Welford, and we sat there, and it was an hour-long worship service about the most raucous, uh, lively worship you are ever going to be a part of, and we were into it. Uh, and, but then when the pastor got up to preach, he didn't get up with a Bible or a text or anything else, but he, st he spent the better part of the next hour preaching to me. I mean, literally to me. How did I know this? He kept saying things like, people who are going to hell, like this young man on the front row, <laughs> kind of gave it away. <laughs> it was the whole sermon, man. It was just, 
a frothy, hollering, blustery sermon about me. <laughs> and I turned, at the end of the sermon, I turned to my friend, Welford, and I said, Welford. He said, what? I said, I ain't never coming back to this church, man. He said, me neither. Let's get out of here. <laughs> we got up to leave, and the whole congregation surrounded. All 60 people came around us and laid hands on us, and they were, started casting demons out of us. I kid you not. And I mean, when we got out into the car, I said, man, we are never coming back to this church. Now, if that had been my only church experience, I have to tell you, I would never have gone back to church. But I had a great church that I had been attending, and I had some mentors there, my youth pastor, Steve Zimke, my pastors at that church, all the leadership in that church. They welcomed this rough, from the wrong side of the tracks, poor street kid into the family of God. They extended the right hand of fellowship, and I'm in the church today, and I'm in the ministry today because of them. Now, you can imagine Saul of Tarsus, the chief adversary of the church has just experienced the resurrected Jesus, and now he has become the chief advocate for the church. And you can imagine how difficult it is for the uh, believers in Damascus to readily welcome him. But they do. They do. They bring him in. So we're going to start by talking about Saul's community. Saul's community. So there, in about verse 19, it says, uh, so Saul was uh, with the disciples in Damascus for some time. He was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Now, we don't know how long. We don't know how long he was there. We don't know how long he incubated there. But he was with those disciples. And what was he doing when he was there? He was growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He was growing in his faith. We know this later on in the story. It's going to tell us that he grew strong. And this was the church, the Damascus church. Now listen, has the distinction in the history of the church as being that congregation that first discipled Paul. All because they had a view of Paul that said, the testimony of Ananias and Paul, they sink. This guy's testimony sounds real. And every day he's vigorously proclaiming the gospel in the synagogues. So his environment, firstly and foremostly, is that of Christian fellowship. The most high-voltage preacher, the most gifted person in the history of the church needed community. Do you think you do? I guarantee you, you do. 1 John 1, 5-7, I want to show you something. Now, this is John. He's writing decades later. And John, in his letter, says this. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Now, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we know we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What is he talking about here? walking in the way. John is Jewish. John was raised in the Pharisaic system. And the Pharisees practiced halakha, halakhic instruction. What does that word mean? It means to walk in the way. What the Pharisees would say is, this is the way. You add all these rules and all these laws and all these legalisms to the Old Testament law, and you follow them fastidiously. You follow them, you check every box, you dot every I, you cross every T. 
And that was the way that Paul and John knew. That's the way they grew up in. But now what John says is this. If someone were to say, I know God, I'm a friend of Jesus, but then their halakha, they walk in the way of darkness. The entirety of their life is characterized by darkness, embracing and drinking the darkness deep. Then they're not really Christians. You see, what happens when, with a believer is there is a change of heart and a change of life. Now, none of us become perfect. In this life, you never will. But immediately, there is evidence of a changed life and a changed heart, and this is the evidence of our fellowship together. This is what happens with Saul of Tarsus. It's easy for him to say, I met the risen Christ, but then to come into the life of the church, to get plugged into the life of the church and begin to live this gospel out, he has fellowship with the body. And this is now what characterizes his life. We talk about Saul's urgency. What about his urgency? Notice this verse in verse 20. It says, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God. That's the message. His urgency. Now, I like this word immediately. Because this is what we call a time text. And when you look in the New Testament, you see words like very soon or quickly or immediately. Those are time texts. And they tell you that something is imminent. So right away, Saul doesn't wait to go to Bible school. He's already been in Bible school his whole life. Uh, he, he can read the Old Testament to you in the most beautiful uh, Hebrew accent that you've ever heard. As a matter of fact, he can probably sing the whole thing. He learned it by the age of 12. So nobody knows the Old Testament better than Paul. And now here he is as a saved, born-again person who has come to the cross, who's experienced the resurrected Jesus immediately. He doesn't waste any time. He gets out there and he starts proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Now, there are a couple of words in here, that he, phrases that he uses in here that we need to note. The first one is proclamation. Why is proclamation in the Bible so important? Why is it so important? Well, because in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, a proclamation in biblical context was a royal announcement or a decree by a commissioned herald or a messenger. So a proclamation is a royal announcement. So you can look back in First Chronicles or Ezra chapter 1 or chapter 10 or the book of Daniel. And what you have are you have these decrees in the Old Testament where someone issued a royal proclamation. And who are they issuing that to? Their kingdom. And so the gospel is the royal announcement that the world's rightful king has come to lead a sinless life, die a vicarious death, resurrect on the third day victorious over sin, and now enthroned, exalted to the right hand of the power of God. And this is the message that he is proclaiming. I mean, the footnote is he is the son of God. Now, what do Christians mean when we proclaim that Jesus is the son of God? Well, we mean a couple of things. The Bible teaches us a couple, at least a couple of things. The first one is that he's the creator. He's the creator. Paul says this in Colos to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 16, in that letter. It says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So if everything in the spectrum of creation, in the entire universe, be it visible or invisible, natural or supernatural, material or immaterial, Christ is 
the creator. He's the vessel through which God has created, the Father has created all things. When we talk about the Son of God, this is what we mean. He is the infinite personal creator of the universe. He shares all those attributes with God the Father. So this is what Christians are talking about. But it also refers to God's royal son who shares the Father's throne and rule. God's royal son who shares the Father's throne and rule. So in the ancient Near East, what you would see is that the father king would always pass his authority on to the son king. And so there is a relief or there's a picture uh, in Egyptian art of the pharaoh sitting on a chair and he's got his crook, his shepherd's crook in one hand and he's got his little baby pharaoh on this, on this knee. This is a real picture. And underneath the baby pharaoh's feet is a stack, what looks like a stack of books, but they're all labeled their kingdoms. So his feet are on top of all of the kingdoms of the world. And so the message is, is that the father king is going to give the son king all the dominion of the world. And is going to put all the nations under his feet. And then you read Psalm chapter 2, and God says, here, sit at my right hand until I make all the nations, put all the nations under your feet. You see, this is the idea of God's royal son. The second person of the Trinity, yes, but also God's anointed king. Hebrews 1.8 says this. This is a quote from a royal psalm, Psalm 45. It says, but to the son, he says, now what's he talking about here? He says, you know, to the angels and to Moses, he would say one thing, but to which of the angels did he ever say this? To the son, God says, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. So God is talking to God, and the point that he's making here in Hebrews chapter 1 is, Father God is talking to the Son of God, saying, your throne is forever. Nobody can assault this kingdom and put the kibosh on God's kingdom. It is forever. It's eternal. And so what should be our response here? Well, the response expected from God's people is this, Hebrews 12, 2. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, and for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the joy? What is it? What's the joy set before him? It's not the cross. It's his enthronement. <laughs> and so he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Now, it brings God great joy that sinners are baptized and confessed and coming into the body of Christ and welcomed into the body of Christ. There is rejoicing in heaven over the repentance of one believer, just one. All of heaven's choirs sing to that, right? So heaven is just really loud right now, okay? But the joy that was set before him is his enthronement. And that's why he endured the cross. That's why he endured a life as a human being incarnate. And this is Paul's message. Now, Paul is going into the synagogues preaching, Jesus is the Son of God, and I met him. Uh, this doesn't mean that every conversation has to be a deal closer, though. And so Saul's urgency does not translate into closing the deal on every single conversation with your friends or family to make sure that in that conversation they make this confession right here 
You and I have an urgency in proclaiming. We have an urgency to turn every conversation we have, hopefully if we can, in the direction, to lean it in the direction of Jesus. We want to do that. Uh, years ago, um, we had a Christmas morning. I was 19 years old, and I completely forgot about it. I completely forgot about that morning until I went on vacation last week to visit my family in Florida, and my brother, who is the family historian, has all of our stuff, and he has all of our old videos. And some of them are quite embarrassing. <laughs> but this was Christmas morning, and he played this one, and I completely forgot about this. And on the screen comes my brother and I, and there I am, 19 years old. I'm 19 years old, and I'm sitting there, and there are several things that I noted about myself that had changed. <laughs> uh, I didn't have any gray. I had all my hair. My hairline looked great. Uh, it was 60 pounds ago, so, <laughs> you know, not, not a great change. I've been steadily over the last 30 years just sort of encapsulating myself in this carbohydrate capsule. <laughs> what? I got to survive the winter. <laughs> you know, I live in Idaho, man. And then I just noticed, like, I just sat there, and my mom was so dirt poor. My dad had died, and my mom was making about $13,000 a year trying to live off of that and put a roof over our head, and she was trying to have Christmas morning with us, and we were opening these presents. These presents were terrible. They were like all dollar store presents. But every single one we opened, we were like, oh, man, thanks, Mom, for these suede Puma shoes. These are great, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like breakdancing shoes we used to wear back in 1979. And she got me a sweater, a really neat, neato sweater. <laughs> and it had giant prayer hands on it. You know the prayer hands? Like this tall. And I opened it and I go, I'm, I'm going to wear this every day, Mom. <laughs> I was just trying to be nice to my mom. Who, who was trying to, who, her heart was in it. But then the whole way back, back to the hotel, the whole drive back to the hotel, all I could think about is what I would say to that young man if I could step through the screen and give him some advice. And I could think of a lot of advice. One of them would be just, hey, calm down. <laughs> you know, just uh, take it easy, man. Don't get so worked up about stuff. That would be one. But the other one would be, hey, man, stay on this path. You make sure that you keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, because there's going to come some stuff in the next 30 years that's coming to your doorstep, and you're going to need to keep your eyes on Jesus and nothing else. You stay on the path, bro. The second thing I would tell myself is, for sure, don't wait till you're 50 to start keto. <laughs> Do it now. Stop eating 800 grams of carbs every day for the next 30 years. <laughs> like, just back it up a little bit, you know? So Saul's community in Damascus has welcomed him. Like no other church, they extend him the right hand of fellowship and welcome him in. He is growing in his knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is preaching an urgent message. Try, trying to tell as many people as he can, Jesus saved me, and you should know Christ. What about Saul's effect on his audience? Saul's effect on his audience. Verse 21 says, all who heard him were astounded. Yes, of course they were. 
and said, isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was wreaking havoc, like causing havoc for those who called on this name, the name of Jesus, and, came, and he came here for the express purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests. Now remember, last week, he had showed up with letters of recommendation for, from Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem, and those letters of recommendation meant that he could extradite any Christians that he rounded up in those synagogues and take them back to Jerusalem to have them tried. He had the legal right to do this. And everyone knew, word had gone out that this man named Saul of Tarsus is coming to our synagogue to round up Christians. And then Saul comes in and they're like, Rabbi, he still looks like a Pharisee. They motion to him, come, come speak. He's like, sure. (laughs) You know, he gets up and he takes the pulpit and he says, I would like to introduce you to the crucified, resurrected Jesus that I met on the road the other day. And their hair is just Wow, blown back. This is a shock. This is astonishing. What can account for the man who was supposed to be here to round these people up and to rid our city of them, and now he's an advocate for them? He's the principal advocate for the Christian faith. What could possibly account for this? So to their shock and horror, this man who was the infamous adversary of the faith is now preaching it. When I first came to the Lord, my friends and family, and the people who knew me uh, were really shocked. Like everyone who knew that I had come to Jesus, their response, I mean unanimously, was, really? (laughs) Jeff Kennedy? Yes, Jeff Kennedy. A few years later, my mom had run into our little Southern Baptist church pastor. His name was, we call him Preacher Scott. I don't even know if that was his first name or last name, but she ran into Preacher Scott, and uh, she said, oh, hey, Pastor Scott, I wanted to tell you, a Jeff is a, a born-again believer filled with the Spirit, and he's, he's studying for the ministry. And Pastor Scott said, really? <laughs> Jeff Kennedy? <laughs> yes, that Jeff Kennedy. And so now this is a thousand times more true of Paul. Like that was true of me because I was a rough guy. But with Paul, he's an adversary, he's an opponent, a persecutor of the church. And now he's preaching the gospel. And they are immediately astonished by this, flabbergasted. How can this be? Some are shocked positively. Astonishing change in Paul is undeniable, and some of them become believers. Some are shocked negatively, appalled that he would embrace a crucified king, a crucified savior. But no one, absolutely no one, is on the fence about Paul. No one's neutral. Everybody knows what they believe about him. He is either for God or against God. That's their belief. Verse 22, it says, But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had passed, the Jews, well, their response was to kill him. We have to rid the world of this person. But Saul learned of their plot, so they were watching the gates day and night, uh, intending to kill him. But his, disciples, but his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. This is, this is a scene. So they are astonished and frustrated. Why? Because you can't refute this. What are you going to say? The guy shows up to tell you, I'm supposed to be hauling these people to prison, and I have seen the risen Jesus. You can't argue with that. And by the way, I know the Old Testament by heart. Can I show you Jesus in the Old Testament? 
Like now they can see it. And as a Christian, you know how it is, don't you? Like you, you may have heard of the Old Testament stories or maybe read them, and then you become a Christian and you start reading the Old Testament, you see Jesus everywhere. Like you can't help it. And now you see the Old Testament or what they called the Tanakh with new and fresh eyes. So their frustration now morphs into a murderous impulse. They can't refute his case for Christ, so they want to kill him. They want to do the same thing to him that they did to Stephen. And they want to do the same thing to him that they did to Jesus. And the same thing that he was supposed to be doing to Christians there in Damascus. Let's talk about Saul's losses. Because Saul's losses become the church's gains. Saul's losses become the church's gains. It says in verse 26, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Watch this. But they were all afraid of him. Of course. Since they did not believe he was a disciple. Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road, the road to, to Damascus, and that the Lord had talked to him and and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and then sent him back off to his homeland, his home country, Tarsus, which is where he came from. Now, in this paragraph, we get a sense of what Paul is beginning to experience, the kind of loss that he's beginning to experience. What is it? Well, the first thing he loses is his community. Saul lost his community. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, he is deeply embedded in the Pharisaic order. He's deeply embedded. This is a community for him. These are people that he knows. He's grown up with these guys. He has best friends. His closest friends are still rabbis. They're still Pharisees. They still hate Jesus. They still hate Christianity. And here he is. He loses this community. Now, he tries to go to the believers in Jerusalem, and they're like, hold on. Keep him at the door. We're not so sure about him. And so he is a man with no country. Right now, he's just a man who lives in the land in between. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in between? Can't go back to what you knew. You can't go back to what you had. And the thing that you're supposed to be moving toward isn't here yet. You and I all have experienced the land in between, and that's where Paul is. It is a place where he just is not sure who and where his community is. And that is a very discombobulating experience if you have ever experienced it. And number two, Saul lost his place of prominence in a very well-respected profession. All Jews respected the Pharisees. Historian Josephus says this, the Pharisees, now he's a first century Jewish historian. This is what he said about the Pharisees. He said the Pharisees are so well-respected by all Jews that if they say anything, the people will believe them. No matter what the Pharisees say or teach, the people believe because they are the authority brokers. They're the brokers of God's word in that world. And so he's lost his place of pride in this society, this rabbinic order. And then he lost his seniority. Well, you could be a Pharisee and utterly unknown. You could be one of a thousand. But everyone knew Paul because there were a few channels that you could take to the top. 
in terms of notoriety. His path was persecuting the church. So he lost that when he joined the church, right? So he loses that path to notoriety. He does not just lose his order, his society, his community. He loses his place of prominence and notoriety within it. Any seniority he had vanishes. It's gone. And then four, Saul lost his family. The most heartbreaking thing of all is to lose your family. Saul knew, I, I promise you, Saul knew what it was like to lose family members who declared him dead, ostracized. You are dead to us. And in the first century, when a, when a Jew talked about being dead, they weren't just talking about bodily life. They, they weren't. You and I, that's how you and I think of it because we live in a materialistic culture, but they lived in a social community culture. So for them, the idea of dying relationally was a very serious deal. It was very serious. In fact, Jesus uses this very imagery in the parable of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. And in that parable, Jesus says there were two sons of a father, a wealthy man. And the younger son came to the father and demanded his share of the inheritance. The irony, he's the younger brother. He doesn't have an inheritance. All the inheritance goes to the older brother. But he demanded his half. So the father complied and gave him what he wanted. And he storms off in a huff, blazing a trail, crossing over to the Decapolis, east of the Jordan where all the Greek cities are. And there, Jesus says, he squanders his inheritance in riotous, raucous, sinful living. And he blows through his cash pretty fast. And then he has to get a job. And the only job that he can get is a temp job working for a swine farmer. What's the problem there? He's a Jew. He's not supposed to be anywhere around those nasty pigs, those unkosher, unclean pigs. And here he is tending the pigs, and he got so poor, and he got so desperate, it says that he sat there and he looked at what the pigs were eating, and he longed to eat the pig's gruel. He longed for it. And then he came to his senses. You would too, hopefully. He said, not even the slaves in my father's home are treated this poorly. I know what I'll do. I'll go back, and I will beg my father to just take me back as a slave. So he set off for his house, for his home. And seeing him from a distance, the scripture says, Jesus says in the story, Jesus tells us that the father can see the familiar silhouette of a son coming over the horizon. And the father is so excited about his son coming back that he runs out and picks him up and orders that the family robe be put on his filthy son. And the family signet ring put on his finger. And he is reinstated, gloriously reinstated, back into the family. And the older son, the Pharisee, says, this is bogus. You accepted his repentance, and now you're throwing him a big shindig, a party, sacrificing the fattened calf for him. Me and my friends, we have been here the whole time. We never left you, and you have not so far as given us a goat party. I don't know, like (laughs) like slaughtered a, a small goat for us. And what is the father's response to the older son, the Pharisee? Don't you see? My son, your brother, who was lost, is found My son, who was dead, is alive. 
And for a Jew in the first century, if you were dead to the family, you were dead. And this is what Paul becomes to anyone, his wife, his parents, anyone in his life, he becomes dead to them. He lost his family. And Paul knows exactly what this imagery means when he writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.4, he says this, but God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. In case you have any doubt about what his context is, it's right here in verse 11. So then remember that at one time you, Gentiles, were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those of us who called themselves the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants and the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he is our shalom. He is our reconciliation. He is our peace, who made both groups, the Jew and the Gentile, one and tore down the dividing wall between us. What is he saying? You weren't in the family. You weren't a part of this citizenship. You didn't have a covenant. You didn't have a Torah. You didn't have any prophets. You weren't chosen. And now you are. And God has tore down this wall of hostility between those two groups. And now he's creating a temple out of us, Jew and Gentile, saved by grace through faith. And now you're part of the household. You're alive. You see, when we come to the faith and we come into the body of Christ, we come alive. We come alive. And Paul sums up what he lost in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. That's a financial metaphor. He said, it's all written off. It's a loss. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, refuse, flushable, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And here's his life goal. I hope it's yours. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming conformed to his death, assuming that I somehow may reach the resurrection from the dead. What did Paul lose? He said, I lost everything. When I came to Jesus, I lost it all. But what I gained was Jesus. I gained this greatest gift a man or a woman can ever know. What's the application today for us? Well, our faith is nourished and strengthened in Christian community. You know, the CDC has reported that COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic, has had a perilous, negative impact on people's mental health due to isolation and financial difficulty. During the pandemic, four out of 10 people have reported symptoms of mental illness, of anxiety, of depression, that used to be one in 10. And, and the worst part of it, during the pandemic, the worst part of it is that we couldn't get together. Do you see this room? Look around. You know what our business is? 
our business, the reason why we're here is to close distance between you and me, between you and each other, is to create fellowship and community. And we couldn't do that for almost a year. Think about that. You and I were made, we were designed, we were wired for community. And so was Paul. The greatest, most high-voltage preacher in the history of the church needed Damascus, and he needed Jerusalem, and you and I need community too. Now, some of this community is on us. Some of the responsibility is for us to create pipelines and avenues for you to easily access community, but some of it is on you. Some of the responsibility is on you to access that community, to call up and say, hey, I'm coming to your group. Is there still room? So we need it, folks. Second application is our beliefs must translate into urgent action. The late Christopher Hitchens said something like this. One of the most famous atheists of the last century. And here's what he said. He said, I don't think that my Christian friends really believe I'm going to hell. I don't think they really believe that because they never talk about it. They never tell me. Why won't they share this with me? If I don't know Christ and I'm without Christ and without God and without hope in the world, I'm lost forever. Why doesn't anybody tell me that? You and I, listen, we don't have to close the deal in every conversation, but you and I need to lean those conversations in the direction of Jesus because, because people are lost without him. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I, I plead with you, I implore you, give your life to Christ, make the good confession, believe from your heart that he has risen from the dead and been crucified. Next, the losses we suffer for Christ in this life are nothing compared to what we gain in Christ. The cross is not just a symbol of what Jesus did for us. The cross is a symbol of what Christ has done. It's a symbol of what he has done to pay the price for our sins. But Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father, of, of the power of heaven. You and I worship the living Christ. The cross is a symbol of all that he did, but it's not just a symbol of what he did to pay for our sins. It's a symbol of our life in Christ. Because Jesus says, come, take your cross and follow me. He calls us to the cross. He calls us to carry it. And part of the cross that we carry is knowing that there are things in this life we will lose. Things in this life that we will, we will suffer loss, but what, how does that compare to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord? How, does it, how can it compare? Paul understood the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. And lastly, let's be the Barnabas church. There is nothing <laughs> more beautiful than a radiant church community where people are extending the right hand of fellowship to those who are making the good confession, those who are here to investigate the claims of Christ, those who are here who are not there yet, but they're here. There's nothing more beautiful than being Barnabas. Now that word in Greek means the son of what? Encouragement, consolation. What does it mean in Aramaic? Pop quiz. It means the son of the prophet. Because in, in the Jewish world, the prophets were the encouragers. 
And so the son of encouragement extends the right hand of fellowship and welcomes us in to the body. There's nothing more beautiful than a radiant church, a Christ community church, right? And there's nothing uglier. There's nothing worse than a grumpy, complaining, unwelcoming Christian. Nothing. Because a grumpy, complaining about every decision the pastoral staff makes. What are you laughing at? Yeah. <laughs> Christian. That person has taken their eye off the ball. And the ball is the gospel of Jesus and the resurrected, exalted Lord. And the ball is welcoming people with the right hand of fellowship into this faith. Amen? Amen. Oh, you look like you meant that. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. Oh, our hearts are overflowing with gratitude this morning. That people who followed you in obedience and baptism and the testimonies, God, that we saw on that screen, they're just, oh, they're so powerful. And they remind us, like Daniel said, they remind us of, of our decision to follow you in baptism as well. We thank you for every life. And God, will you give us just a sense of holy community here? May we be strengthened in our faith and nourished in our faith in this church, this community right here. And God, we ask that you would give us a sense of urgency. We know that you don't expect us to try to close the deal on every conversation we have, but Lord, we know that you called us to an urgent, urgent gospel to share the good news, to share the life that is in Jesus alone. God, help us to do that. And God, we choose to count our losses. Right now, we choose to carry this cross, the cross that you called us to. And though they are real and sometimes heartbreaking and sometimes difficult to carry. We count those things as a loss for the exceeding greatness of knowing you, our Savior, our Lord. And God, we choose to be the Barnabas Church. Every person in this room who is an attender or member of Christ Community Church is a Barnabas, a son or a daughter of encouragement who welcomes those who are far off into the community. We choose to be that church in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.